Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So this morning we were talking a lot about parents and children. And as God would have it, when I was looking through, trying to discern today what to preach on, was led to the first book of Samuel, the first part of the first book of Samuel. And I read all about Eli and his sons and Samuel, the last two of the great judges. I mean, Samuel was a great judge, crowned the first two kings of Israel. There's hardly a child that doesn't know the name Samuel, even if they don't know all of the details. But it's a little bit less known, the story of Hannah. By show of hands, who remembers Hannah in the Bible? Knows the story. Hannah was Samuel's mother. So we ask, who was Hannah? Why is it important? What does her story have to teach us today? All of which are very good questions. And I looked at the, the first chapter, or the first book of Samuel, and I was looking through, and I was just kind of, I was thinking through Eli and Samuel and really kind of struggling still with what it was that God really wanted me to, to, to speak about. And there's so much there, but it's all really the meat of it seems to be later on in the book. You know, that's when Samuel gets up and starts really doing stuff. And you have a little bit about Eli and his sons, but there's not a lot there. So as I was pondering all this, my wife Candy walks into the room and kindly says, well, why don't you speak about Hannah? And then turns around and walks away. Okay. Well, I'd read the chapters, but I wasn't really focused that direction. I was kind of like, well, what does that mean? So I looked back and I was like, okay. Read, reread the chapters again. And it actually turns out there's plenty to get to know there. Some things for us to learn. Rather than going through the entire first couple of chapters of First Samuel, I'll give you a quick summary. There wasn't a whole lot of hands I saw going up. Hannah was the wife of Elkanah. For many years, we don't know exactly how many, she was unable to bear children. Although Elkanah's other wife, Peninnah, had already done so, and she taunted her about it severely, mercilessly. 
the family made annual trips each year from Ramah to Shiloh. Now, let me put that in a little bit of perspective for you. We're talking about basically going from Mineola to Yantis, but not by car, by foot. I'm not looking forward to a trip like that, but that's okay. They make this annual trip, and the idea is that they're going there to the temple to make their annual sacrifices and to pray and receive the annual blessing. It's kind of a tradition in their family. So though Anna, uh, Hannah has no children, she receives a double portion of the sacrificial meat, while Peninnah receives a, a portion for herself and portions for each of her children. This was kind of the tradition that was followed in the Jewish community. Although Hannah receiving a double portion was an unusual event um, or an unusual uh, thing to have happen, the idea being it displayed Elkanah's love for Hannah, even though she didn't have children. And it actually kind of highlighted the fact that she didn't have them. Peninnah's taunting is so hurtful to Hannah that she can't even eat the meat, though. And it confounds her husband to the point that he's constantly asking her, am I not enough? Is this family, do I not provide well enough? What's the deal? Can't you feel blessed even though you don't have children? On one such trip, Hannah's praying silently. She's, she's had enough. She's gone to the temple, and she's started to pray. And she's praying silently, which was not done. As a matter of fact, it's against Levitical law to pray silently at that, at that point in time. And she's praying silently in the, the, the temple there, and she is asking God for a son. She's like, Lord, just give me a son, and I'll return him to you. So she vows to return him to God, But while she's praying, she's noticed by Eli the priest. And he thinks she's been drinking. Because her lips are moving, but nothing's coming out. So the text tells us that he confronts her and asks her if she's drunk. And she responds, no, she's praying in anguish. And that moves Eli's heart, and he sends her off with a blessing May your prayers be heard. She's delighted at that point in time. Immediately, she has faith that her prayers will be answered. She returns home to Ramah with her husband. And as often the way of God, she conceives that night. And then we're told that after the child is born and has been weaned, she takes him with her sac- uh, takes him along with the sacrifice to Shiloh, turns the boy over to Eli, this is Samuel, to be raised in the temple, serving God. She makes the sacrifice of the animals that she's brought along, and then prays a prayer known as Hannah's Song of Praise or Hannah's Prayer of Praise. and then immediately turns around with her husband and departs again for Ramah. She goes home, leaving this child behind. 
And about the only thing we know beyond that is that the family continues to make annual visits to Shiloh. And each year she makes a coat and she brings it to the boy. Presumably they have a short visit. They're blessed by Eli and they go home. And we do find out that she's later blessed with five more children, three boys and two girls. So that's the, that's the summary, if you will, of the plot of this. And like most stories, I think most of you, like me, like a happy ending. This didn't start that way, though. We need to look back at the beginning, take a real close look, and see what it is that we can learn from this. So we first learn of Hannah in chapter 1, verse 2. Remember, I said this was right at the very beginning. It's mentioned that Elkanah had two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. The interesting thing is Hannah was mentioned first. And in Jewish tradition, that meant that she was the favored wife. She was the one that was loved. She was the one that, that Elkanah preferred, even though she didn't have children. Now, it's mentioned that Peninnah had children before it's mentioned that Hannah did not. And again, going back to Jewish tradition, this actually goes and brings to mind the fact that this was a very important issue at that time. As a matter of fact, it was part and parcel to a woman standing in the home, whether she had children or not. It was part of the stature of the family. It was critical. The passage also parallels passages in Genesis regarding Rachel and Leah. If you think about it, this is back where we're talking about Jacob, and he's gone to Laban, and he wants to marry Rachel. He says, I'll work for you for seven years if you give me Rachel in marriage. But she was the younger daughter, and Laban tricks him and substitutes Leah on the wedding night. Finding out the following morning that he's with Leah, he makes a deal again that he will work another seven years in exchange for getting to marry Rachel. And what follows in Genesis is a back and forth between Leah and Rachel and their servants. Who's getting, having children? Who's bearing children? How many children are they having? And the discord that comes into the family because of it. The thing is, it's not just about stature and status or who gets loved more. It's also about survival. In the case of Hannah, if Elkanah had died before Hannah, if she was still alive, she would depend on those children for her survival. Having sons especially was what she would have to depend on to not be in the streets. Elderly widow women at the time had a very rough life to try and survive in. So it wasn't just status. It was stature and potentially life itself. It's not a wonder then that she was so troubled by the taunting that she received on a daily basis by Peninnah. Some of you may be thinking, is this what we're to learn of the story? Mm, That having children was important? Yes and no. It's something to learn about for the time period, but no, that's not the most important thing to know. 
This morning, I want to give you the three lessons that I think we can draw from this. There's undoubtedly a lot more, but we don't really have time to dig through this entire chapter to really get down to the meat of it all. I think we can sum them up in in three pretty quick and easy lessons. The first of that is often our trials and sufferings are there to bring us to a place to be the best use, the best service to the Lord. Often our trials and sufferings are there to bring us to a place to be of the best service to the Lord. The second lesson is this. Pray boldly. Okay, that was short, so I'm going to say it again. Pray boldly. And our third lesson is honoring your commitments joyfully brings blessings. Honoring your commitments joyfully brings blessings. Well, I think we all realize that there will be trials in life and that God works for those to be good for his greater glory. I think oftentimes we look for the good in order to justify the suffering. We've got to find that little nugget of hope. And Hannah was definitely suffering. Day in and day out. If we look in verse 7, it was year after year that it's mentioned. She would be reduced to tears and not even be able to eat. And you know, this was not just that one time a year. This was every day. And finally, she gets to a point of desperation where she goes in and she prays to God that if he would just give her a son, she'd give him right back. Now think about that for a second. This wasn't just a question of having a child. All of those things that she was looking to fulfill or that she was thinking about fulfilling by having this child, she was going to give up. She wouldn't have him to raise. She wouldn't have him to depend on in her old age should Elkanah pass before her. By promising to give him up, she would only gain little in stature. She was only asking for the one child. There's no mention of other children. It was a promise of further sacrifice further suffering. But through her suffering, God had brought her to a place where she could be content just to bear the one child and give him up. And thereby bringing us one of the greatest judges in biblical history. In my own life, I began to learn this lesson just a little bit. I didn't really want to go to Afghanistan. I had no desire to deploy overseas. I had just remarried. My password going to seminary was just starting to get investigated and underway and trying to be planned out. I worried about what the outcome would be. Deployments are always uncertain times. I really didn't like it over there. 
mean, when I got over there, it's hot. You're in the desert, both physically and for me also spiritually. My time wasn't full of action and adventure. I think pretty much all of you can take one look at me and know I was not G.I. Joe. But it wasn't completely safe either. It wasn't without its danger. And as I mentioned, it was a time of the desert. I felt very, very abandoned. And even to this day, I really don't see a lot of good that came out of it directly. There were little things here and there, possibly some bigger things for those around me, but truthfully, I I wondered if it was a good thing or not. Now, Candy, on the other hand, she can tell you it's put me in a completely different place. There are differences in my behavior, my demeanor, especially while driving. The things that I show more value, there are are a variety of things where I show more value than I talk about valuing. I'm learning it's a time that God actually put me in a place that I didn't want to be in order to prepare me for whatever it is that he's calling me to do. And, you know, I don't know exactly what it is that I'm going to be doing. I just know that there's a calling there that I've got to be prepared for. And I'm also learning that it put others in places they needed to be to prepare them for things that they're being called to do, some right now, some in the future. And for you, it may be very, very similar. It may be very drastically different. There are quite likely trials that you have had to go through and suffering that you just don't see the benefit of. There are things that you're looking at the situation just wondering, what good came out of this? Where's God's greater glory here? And the fact is that maybe, just maybe, God was setting the stage. Maybe he was putting you in that place that you needed to be to prepare you for something better, to prepare you for the service that he was calling you to do. Recently, Candy and I have been listening to an audio book on CD called Alter Ego. Not alter as in different, but alter as in alter. And it's by Craig Groeschel. Okay, mostly it's been candy listening to the book. And occasionally I've listened in. And in this one particular case, um, she wanted me to listen to a section where he's encouraging the, the listener, the reader, to pray boldly. He references the book of Acts. He talks about things of the prayers of the apostles. He talks about the early church and how they didn't just pray for good weather and sunshine. Lord, if it's in your will, can I move from here to there or can I get my house sold or can I do this or can I do that? Or Lord, if it's in your will, let's make this this happen. They prayed boldly. Lord, heal this person. Raise the dead. Miracles. 
They expected it. They prayed with a level of expectation that God would move among them. And they saw those miracles happen. Again, they weren't the easy things either. These were real supernatural miracles they were looking for. And the author's making a connection here between faith, commitment, and the exhortation of prayer to powerfully demonstrate God moving in our lives, in our world today. And this was the kind of prayer Hannah prayed. After so many years of not conceiving a child, she prayed boldly that she would, con- that she would conceive the child and then give the child back to God. So how is that bold? Start off with, Hannah was praying silently. As I mentioned earlier, that was against Levitical law. And part of the reason for that was Levitical law had it that a vow, especially one held in prayer, was like a contract. Had witnesses involved. But not just that. Hannah was a female. She was a woman praying. She had a husband. And by her vow, she was committing her husband to that very same vow. And by praying silently, he did not have the opportunity to hear and either object or overrule that vow. She was committed to this task. She was committed that if she received this miracle of a child, that she would follow through with that commitment. She was boldly praying for a miracle and willing to risk all for it. The displeasure of her husband, possibly even being put away. The displeasure of the priest, who saw her praying silently. And knowing that even if she got her wish, even if she got her prayer answered, the very thing she was asking for, she was going to have to turn right around and give away. So what do we pray boldly for today? How often do we pray for something only to caveat it with if it's your will or something similar? What's the last time you prayed for a real miracle and really believe that God would do it? Hannah shows us that we need to pray fervently from our hearts for miracles each and every day. She prayed for years, for years for a child, and never gave up. Commitment not just to what we're looking for, but commitment to God and knowing that he answers prayers. What would you pray boldly for if you believed God would grant your request, even if it isn't in the time frame you'd want it in? He's asking us to pray boldly, to look for those things, pray from our hearts, 
and let him work those miracles in our lives. Finally, we all know it's good to honor our commitments. It's not new or relevatory. Even in the secular world, you hear phrases like, do what you say you're going to do. Don't make promises you don't intend on keeping. But there's a deeper meaning and a blessing behind keeping your commitments that we find in Hannah's story. Hannah could not have guessed the pivotal role Samuel would lead in Israel's history, nor the amazing life he would lead. In fact, after verse 21 in chapter 2, we hear nothing further of Hannah. We don't know what became of her, other than that God blessed her with three more sons and two daughters, five children born to a previously barren woman. What we do know is that she kept her vow. She brought Samuel to the temple and gave him to the priest to be raised in God's service. Not only that, but she brought a sacrifice as well, something that wasn't required. And then after the sacrifice, she offered prayers or a song of praise. This was not done with a begrudging or a mournful heart. There was no remorse. On the very day she gave her only child up, the only one she was expecting, she praised God for his victory, for the miracle in her life, that he answered her prayer. It wasn't just with an obligation. She did it joyfully. There's something to be said for doing the right thing, no matter how hard it is. But doing it with a heart of praise, a heart of joy, that's something more altogether more. Hannah brought forth her son with no expectation or promise. She brought forth a sacrifice and her praise. And in the end, she was rewarded in ways she couldn't have guessed. Her firstborn, a biblical leader. And five more children after that. And even more so, if you think back to the very beginning of this, just recognizing that God could answer her prayers, hearing Eli's words, may the Lord hear your prayer, she was healed on the inside. She went home happy with a glad heart. She let God heal her just from the faith that he would answer that prayer. When we're going through the valleys of life, the rough and rocky roads, when we're burdened and suffering, often that's when God is working on us, preparing us. He's moving us to where we need to be so that we can call out to him, so that we can pray boldly for the things that are burdening our hearts. He's guiding us to those places where we will ask for the miracles that demonstrate his active working in our lives and in this world for his glory and his honor. And sometimes he's waiting for us to be ready to risk it all, commit it all, put it all out there, and then follow through with that commitment to demonstrate our faith and our resolve and our praise. 
And sometimes, just sometimes, you may get to almost audibly hear him say, just watch what I'm going to do next. You're going to love this. Let us pray. Father, the praise which we want to bring to you each and every day, sometimes we fall just a, a lot short. The faith that we want to have each and every day, we find challenging. The struggles, the trials, the temptations, the failures. We see these things and we wonder, where's the good? Where's the blessing? Where are you working in our lives? It's at those times where we have to search our hearts and look for those burdens and we lift them up to you, Lord, with expectation, with faith. that you are molding us and shaping us and asking us to step forward and be ready to do those things which you would ask us to do, to show that, that love, to show that presence, to show God to those around us, to be Christ to our neighbors so that they too can come and enjoy the blessings and the benefits that you have in store for each and every one of us. But even more so, so that they can come and enjoy the warmth and glow of your love. Lord, as we go forward today, we just ask that you show us those bits and pieces, those things that we can do those ways that we can honor the commitments that we need to make and do so joyfully so that you can be glorified in this world today and tomorrow and the rest of the days of our lives and beyond. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.